0: Hey, everybody. It is Thursday, December 7th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Oshmanunu.
1: And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts.
0: And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, it's good to be back on this side of the border. Had a nice (laughs) quick trip to Montreal. Though I do want to return when there's not 10 inches of snow on the ground (laughs) and they're having troubles plowing through it all.
1: Well, in that case, I'm glad you got home safe and sound. We actually had some flurries here on Long Island on Wednesday.
0: Yeah, a little taste of winter in the Northeast. The past couple of winters, we haven't had much snow. It's sort of like nothing or everything in a day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let's see what's in store. I believe the prediction, because it's an El Nino year, is that we won't get much. But, you know, all we've learned about the weather lately is it's completely out of whack and unpredictable. So.
1: All right, let's get to some headlines here. What we know about a shooting on the campus of UNLV in Nevada. To politics. Takeaways from last night's GOP debate, likely the last before voting begins next month. Former Speaker Kevin McCarthy is leaving Congress. What that means for Republicans' slim majority in the House.
0: Yeah, he didn't even want to wait till the end of his term, Joe. It's been a rough 2023 for Kevin.
1: (laughs) Fallout after the presidents of Harvard, MIT and UPenn testified about anti-Semitism on campus with calls for them to step down. To the Middle East, the latest on the fighting in Gaza, where the IDF says it's eliminated about half of Hamas's battalions. Consider it a holiday gift. Gas prices hit their lowest level in months. Another woman has come out to accuse Sean Diddy Combs of sexual assault. And are you ready for it? Times Person of the Year is Taylor Swift. Plus, has on the day in
0: history. A little bit of uh, space history. Jill. Plus is December 7th, which is the anniversary of Pearl Harbor. So we'll look back on that.
1: All right, let's start with that shooting on the campus of UNLV in Nevada. It happened at around noon on Wednesday. A message went out to the UNLV community that there was an active shooter and students and staff needed to either run, hide or shelter in place. Later on Wednesday, police said that they engaged the shooter and that he is dead. They say there is no longer a threat on campus. Mosh, what do we know about the victims?
0: So, Jill, there was a briefing late on Wednesday. Three people were killed in the shooting, and one additional person was taken to an area hospital with a gunshot wound. That person, as of early Thursday, is in stable condition. Four other people were hospitalized after suffering panic attacks. And then two police officers received minor injuries while searching the campus's rooms and buildings for more victims. Now to what we know about the suspect. According to police, he was actually a professor who unsuccessfully tried to get a job at UNLV. Authorities haven't named him yet, but he's described as a white male in his late 60s. He previously taught in the Southeast, including at East Carolina University in North Carolina. So after allegedly not getting a job at UNLV, he showed up with a gun on Wednesday. Police say the shooting started on the fourth floor of a building that houses the Lee Business School at UNLV. The gunman then went to several floors before he was killed in a shootout with two university detectives outside the building. Now, this is just the latest trauma. For more students in this country, we've seen this story time and time again in dozens of schools around the country. Students and the community were alerted to the emergency by a university post on social media that read, this is not a test. Run, hide, fight. Students interviewed afterwards said they were texting with friends, loved ones, hoping to receive word a suspect had been detained, telling their family that they love them and they hope to see them as they were hiding, not knowing What their fate would be. According to one student, some professors uh, gathered students afterwards who were hiding out in classrooms to tell them that everything was over. With this shooting now at UNLV, there have been 80 U.S. school shootings this year. According to CNN, 51 shootings have been reported at K through 12 campuses and 29 on universities and colleges. So it's effectively one to two school shootings a week for the year of 2023. This is also an extra trauma for those in the Vegas area, just six years after that mass shooting in 2017 at the music festival that left 58 people dead, hundreds more wounded. That's just a few miles away from the campus here. President Biden addressed the shootings late in the day. That includes, by the way, a shooting that killed several people across Texas and Austin and San Antonio the previous day, Biden expressing sympathy for the families of those affected while calling on Republicans in Congress to pass a ban on assault weapons and high capacity magazines. That is unlikely to move forward, but that is something you typically hear from President Biden um, after these types of incidents.
1: Now to politics, the fourth and final GOP debate before the end of the year with just about five weeks until the Iowa caucus. The stage a bit smaller, just four candidates, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie and tech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy. Once again, former President Trump, the dominant frontrunner, skipped the debate. But unlike the previous debate nights, he didn't go for counterprogramming. He held a private fundraiser. Mosh, you have been calling these the JV debates. What are some of your takeaways this time around?
0: Yes, Jill, and my opinion is no different this go around. We should note this debate, by the way, was broadcast on the News Nation cable network. Some of you might be familiar with it. Many of you may not be. Uh, It's an upstart cable news channel that doesn't have full distribution. They did stream it on their website. It was also shown on the CW network. But I think you can be pretty sure that the ratings for this one won't be very high. So it's not clear what impact it'll have on voters. In fact, there were some media reporters uh, who were trying to talk to Iowa Republicans and New Hampshire Republicans, those are the first two states that are going to be voting in January, to ask them what they thought about the debate. Their response to the reporters, what debate? There's a debate tonight? Just to give you an indication that you know some of the voters that are really into the process, especially in Iowa and New Hampshire, are going to be voting, didn't even know this thing was going on Wednesday night. As far as the stage, you mentioned it was the four of them, Christy, Ramaswamy, Haley, DeSantis. Of course, the 500 pound gorilla, Donald Trump, not there again. Uh, Chris Christie, by the way, making a point at the debate, uh, telling the other three candidates, you know, you guys are all pretending like we're the only candidates uh, running here. Trump's leading us by 30, 40 percent in some cases. Uh, we need to take him seriously. We need to criticize him. We need to explain to our voters, our Republicans, why they should vote for us instead of him. You know, we're just over four weeks from the first voting in Iowa. They're desperately out of time here, given that, you know, he's lapped them all a couple times. So that's going to be the key thing to watch here. Now, the bottom line is this. Without any major breakthroughs tonight, and I'll say there was no major breakthrough, basically Trump continues to lead. Nothing impacted him tonight in any significant way. What was interesting to watch on Wednesday night was Haley was really center stage. She took attack after attack after attack, clearly seen as the second place candidate, right? Um, So everyone was going after her on a variety of things, including the fact that she got a whole bunch of endorsements recently and donations from Wall Street from billionaires. They tried to imply that you know the reason why she got that is she's making them promises, these billionaires. uh, And she said, no, they want my opinions. And again, you guys are totally jealous. You totally would have taken their money and their endorsements if they liked you. So she fended off a lot of attacks. Uh, DeSantis, I will say, had his best debate of the four debates. He finally looked a bit comfortable on stage, continues to ride the line, though, of overlapping with Trump on issues without explaining to those voters why they should vote for Ron over Don, if you will. Now, he did imply at one point Christie got into it with him being like, come on, like you need to address Trump. Finally, DeSantis is like, sure, he's too old, uh, approaching 80. And then he went after Trump on not firing Anthony Fauci, not building the wall and having Mexico pay for it. And he actually noted that Trump deported less people than President Obama did when it comes to illegal immigration. So you continue to have DeSantis and Haley in the polls. It'll be interesting to see if there's any impact in the last couple of weeks here. But they're both basically between 15 and 20 percent in the early voting states and of course, you have Trump riding between 40 to 50% of the vote. Now, Haley, for her part, was also critical of Trump to a certain extent. Christie was the most critical, but she did say that Trump spent $9 trillion, put us $9 trillion more into debt in just four years by overspending. She called him the chaos individual, saying that you know he's going to bring chaos to our government again, and that she also says Trump allowed Chinese infiltration into America. So the question is, are they going to have to go harder? Answer, yes, on Trump to draw that contrast. And will they convince some Republican voters that are willing to give the president, former president, another shot of the nomination that he's not the guy? And that's something we're all going to be watching over the course of these next six weeks. I will mention one other thing because this is probably the most memorable moment of the night It's looking like the end of the road for Vivek Ramaswamy. The candidates have all had it with him. Even the moderators are like, okay, enough. At times, he sounded like a high school debater, making ad hominem personal attacks, particularly after Nikki Haley, at one point, he said, you know, Nikki, my three-year-old can show you where Israel is on a map. Just like nasty little things that he was uh, saying, and it clearly got under all of their skin. Most of all, Chris Christie, he had it. He just went off on Ramaswamy, it was quite a takedown. I want you to take a listen to Chris Christie. This is in the first hour of the debate, just being done with Vivek Ramaswamy.
2: Okay, you say tell about this, how you, you want to send do this, kid to die. You do this at every debate. You go out on the stump and you say something. All of us see it on video. We confront you on the debate stage. You say you didn't say it, and then you back away. And I want to I'll say tell you one. exactly and no, what I said, I'm, Chris. I'm not done in. yet. Well, this now is, look. This Hold and on. Hey, something. This is the fourth debate, the fourth debate that you would be voted in the first 20 minutes as the most obnoxious blowhard in America. So <laughs> shut up for a little while. I'm gonna, I'm gonna respond to that. I'm to out. No, I you say to it. After, after after the version I'll it. take that. Finish. I want to say something else. We're now 25 minutes into this debate, and he has insulted Nikki Haley's basic intelligence. Not her positions, her basic intelligence. She doesn't know regions. She wouldn't be able to find something on a map that his three-year-old could find. Look, if you want to disagree on issues, that's fine. And Nikki and I disagree on some issues. But I'll tell you this, I've known her for 12 years, which is longer than he's even started to vote in a Republican primary. And while we disagree about some issues and we disagree about who should be president of the United States, what we don't disagree on is this is a smart, accomplished woman, and you should stop insulting. So I to take this.
0: This is where Chris Christie excels. He's just, you know, he's the guy from Jersey. He knows how to deal with bullies. You saw this a bit in 2016. He did the same thing to Marco Rubio, who's running for president. And here he's just like, Ramaswamy, let me tell you why you're so obnoxious and let me defend Nikki Haley. Now keep in mind. Christie and Nikki Haley you know, do disagree on a number of things, but they respect each other, and they do both come from that more centrist, established wing of the Republican Party. So if and when one of them drops out, in this case, it appears it would be Christie based on polling numbers, he will likely endorse Nikki Haley. But again, they weren't alone. Ron DeSantis is rolling his eyes at Ramaswamy. The moderators are rolling their eyes. You know, he had that moment in that first debate, but he just comes across as very amateurish. And it'll be interesting to see how long he lasts. Now, he has remained loyal to Trump, uh, clearly seeing that, you know, he can be an heir apparent for that wing of the party. And, you know, there's speculation that maybe, you know, Trump would consider him for a cabinet position or even vice president. So we will watch that. But really, it comes down to right now, Haley DeSantis, can either of them make a move, consolidate enough voters to uh, really compete with Trump? Again, Iowa votes January 15th, New Hampshire after that. Then you have South Carolina, Nikki Haley's state. Then you have Florida, Ron DeSantis' state. Then you have Super Tuesday where 15 states vote. That comes up March 5th, but that's going to come up quick less than 90 days away. So really these candidates have to show a move in the next four to six weeks, start to gain traction in the six to 10 week mark. By mid-February, you could be in a position where Trump is dominating race after race after race, and it'll be difficult to catch up with him, especially after Super Tuesday and those 15 states votes. So I just told you about a debate that most people didn't know about. There are some interesting headlines out of it. How much of it will gain traction? Question mark. Uh, All these candidates will be pounding the pavement um, in New Hampshire, in Iowa, in these early voting states in the coming weeks. So we're going to continue to monitor it. But again, bottom line, nothing major changed tonight, at least not at this moment. Trump is still sort of running away with the nomination, but they showcase some contrast with him. And we'll see if we're going to hear more. We're going to see if they go on the attack here and to what extent there's a percentage of the Republican Party that's amenable, that's open to uh, another candidate if they're currently telling pollsters that they're going to vote for Trump.
1: Sticking with politics, Congressman Kevin McCarthy, the first Speaker of the House, ousted just a few months into his term, now says that he will resign from Congress at the end of this month. So he's not even waiting until the end of his term. In an opinion piece for The Wall Street Journal, he wrote... No matter the odds or personal cost, we did the right thing. That may seem out of fashion in Washington these days, but delivering results for the American people is still celebrated across the country. It is in this spirit that I've decided to depart the House at the end of the year to serve America in new ways. I know my work is only getting started. Unclear, Mosh, what exactly he's going to be doing, but whatever the reason, His departure gives House Republicans an even slimmer majority, and that's going to make it even more difficult for them to pass legislation without Democratic support. So McCarthy is leaving before the February 13th special election, which will replace expelled Congressman George Santos in New York, cutting the Republican majority down to 220 members versus the Democrats, 213 so that means that House Republicans could lose only three votes before they would need Democratic votes to pass measures.
0: Yeah, so You got McCarthy out. You got Santos out right now. And potentially, Santos could be replaced by a Democrat. So you already have that very slim Republican majority. And, you know, to those of you listening are like, well, what's the problem with working with Democrats? Well, the problem that the new speaker, Mike Johnson, has is the same problem Kevin McCarthy had, which is there is a wing of Republicans that don't really want to compromise. Right. They want what they want. And that's one of the reasons that McCarthy went down. Just looking at McCarthy's career, by the way, he spent about 16 years in Congress. He was part of a group that came in in the mid-2000s called the Young Guns. It was him... Eric Cantor and Paul Ryan, Um, all conservatives in a traditional sense. But we've watched the evolution of the Republican Party over the course of the past two decades. That's effectively gone to the right of them. And that frustrated those guys as Paul Paul Ryan would go on to become speaker, get frustrated by that group of far right conservatives. Kevin McCarthy, 15 votes to become speaker in January, then ousted by that group in cooperation with Democrats. So McCarthy, very ambitious, had high goals, and of course, made history in the way that he wasn't hoping to, which was the first speaker to be ousted uh, with a motion to vacate. So uh, sort of embarrassing for him these past couple of months. And he's sort of like, what's the point of sticking around through the end of my term next year? Let me go do what a lot of Congress members do after their terms, which is go make money because you don't make much as a congressman. So they go sit on boards because of their connections, because of their influence, And that is probably what you can expect McCarthy to do, given his connections, though he did have a statement in his um, goodbye message, Jill, where he said, the challenges we face are more likely to be solved by innovation than legislation. So take that for what it's worth. Um, Fun fact about Kevin McCarthy. He traces the start of his political career back to a $5,000 lottery ticket that he won that $5,000 helped him open a sandwich business which then helped him fund his first run for state politics in California.
1: All you need is a dollar and a dream, Mosh. <laughs>
0: and, and you too can become a speaker for nine months and then get ousted by eight people who will never be happy with anything that you do. Staying with politics here, President Biden over at the White House on Wednesday was sounding the alarm and giving a message to Capitol Hill that they need to pass aid to Ukraine ASAP. Right now, Republicans have been insisting on border security measures and money related to fighting illegal immigration if they were to also vote for more aid for Ukraine. Keep in mind, there's the $110 billion uh, aid package. It includes money for Taiwan, money for Israel, money for border security, and about just over $60 billion for Ukraine. But over the course of the past few months, you have seen more and more Republicans say, Enough is enough. We've already given them upwards of $120 billion. We would like some more transparency from the Ukrainians on this, but Biden making the case that the money is about to run out and the U.S. being the single largest funder of the Ukraine war, if they can't help Ukraine, that is uh, music to Vladimir Putin's ears. Here's a bit of Biden. Frankly, I think it's stunning that we've gotten to this point in the first place. Well, Congress, Republicans and Congress are willing to give Putin the greatest gift he could hope for, and abandon our global leadership, not just Ukraine, but beyond that. So there you have him saying, you know, without this new funding, Russia could finally gain momentum here. Basically, it's been a a, a war of several feet or several yards for the past few months in terms of the area that Russia controls of Ukraine, the area Ukraine controls, with no real breakthroughs in there. And that is with, you know, constant U.S. support and military equipment uh, to the Ukrainians. Biden making the case here, if Putin takes Ukraine, he won't stop there He will go to NATO countries that will then force U.S. troops to be fighting in this war because Putin is ambitious in regaining the Soviet Union and the entire empire that they had. The White House had hoped the funding bill would pass through the Senate easily, putting pressure on the House Republicans. But it turns out he's facing some trouble with Senate Republicans here who have asked for more when it comes to border security before they support Ukraine. So um, this is where we're at as we come to the end of the year. Some folks at the Pentagon do say they can stretch some aid based on some budget mechanism through the winter. But it does appear that the money is about to run out. And Europe says, you know, we can't give Ukraine the aid that you Americans do. And of course, they're in Putin's backyard there. So um, they're watching what's happening in Washington very closely as well.
1: And most the fallout continues after Tuesday's testimony from the presidents of Harvard, UPenn and MIT that we first mentioned yesterday. Lawmakers called them to Capitol Hill to answer questions about what they're doing to combat anti Semitism and rising harassment of Jews on campus. Republicans questioned why the administrators have not yet punished students or eliminated student groups that are using hateful and violent language. The presidents all said that they disdain anti Semitic language, but also value free speech. Needless to say, their answers not going over well uh, with new calls for them to resign. Here is a clip from the hearing. This is Representative Elise Stefanik. She's from New York, a Republican. She asked each of the three presidents whether calls for Jewish genocide violated their policies on bullying and harassment. And they all kind of gave a version of the same response, which is that it depends on the context. So just take a listen. Ms. McGill, at Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct, yes or no?
2: If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment, yes. I
1: I am asking, specifically calling for
2: the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context dependent decision, Congresswoman.
1: Samosh, that, of course, was the president of UPenn. Billionaire investor Bill Ackman, he has been one of the people who have been leading the calls for schools to do more to protect Jewish students. He wrote on Twitter or X after the testimony, quote, they must all resign in disgrace.
0: Yeah, he's among a number of uh, Wall Street folks who uh, watched it and said that if they were the CEO of a company, they would get fired immediately for equivocating on a question like genocide like that. So a lot of outrage, a lot of shock that there wasn't a simple yes answer to if somebody was calling for genocide of Jews, is that considered harassment? And they all three of these presidents were like, well, it depends. And there was just a lot of surprise. By the way, that surprise goes all the way up to the White House. A White House spokesperson saying on Wednesday, we just witnessed the worst massacre suffered by the Jewish people since the Holocaust. The latest atrocities and a heartbreaking genocidal pattern that goes back thousands of years. It's unbelievable that this needs to be said. Calls for genocide are monstrous and antithetical to everything we represent as a country. So even the White House saying, guys, I can't believe that was your answer. Now, with all of the reaction, the Harvard president, Claudine Gay, putting out a statement the next day, yesterday saying, there are some who have confused a right to free expression with the idea that Harvard will condone calls for violence against Jewish students. Let me be clear, calls for violence or genocide against the Jewish community or any religious or ethnic group are vile. They have no place at Harvard and those who threaten our Jewish students will be held to account. Leading to the question, where was that statement before Congress on Tuesday? Why did that statement finally come out on Wednesday?
1: It's not like they didn't know they were testifying. They had days oh, to yeah. prepare for this. It was a, it was a little puzzling.
0: And you can imagine they had their lawyers with them, they had, you know, top officials with them. With schools like that, with budgets like that, I imagine they might have had outside consultants um, with them to work on messaging. I mean, all these campuses have been, you know, fraught with controversy, with back and forth. I mean, for the past two months, as the war has been unfolding here, just across the board, there it was, you know, surprising to many folks that that was the answer they had after all that prep. So, of course, I mentioned the White House. Uh, you also had the governor of Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro, who happens to be Jewish. Uh, he spoke on Wednesday calling out the president of University of Pennsylvania, saying that her marks were shameful. It's not hard to condemn genocide against Jews or anybody else. You know, ultimately, if you're calling for a genocide against any minority group, people of color, trans people, women, whatever, there should be moral clarity there, he says, and they failed to act with moral clarity. Uh, The governor of Pennsylvania saying that the board of the university, the trustees should decide what to do with the president there, given what she said. So a lot of fallout here from that exchange, which just sort of blew up, um, Tuesday night into Wednesday, and it does come as a recent survey was released last week from the Anti Defamation League. They surveyed Jewish college students. Three out of four say they have recently experienced or witnessed anti Semitism this fall.
1: Yeah, I was struck by some of these students who also testified. Uh, there was one student from MIT, a graduate student named Talia Khan. She says her mother is Jewish, her father is Muslim. And she was describing a situation where, where she said it's it's frightening actually to walk on campus at MIT. She said there is an Israeli student who she's friendly with, who hasn't left his dorm since the war started because he's been getting death threats.
0: Yeah, it just it's a next level of of rhetoric that has gone to threats and harassment and fears of violence, um, violent speech, and it does speak to the you know large debate of what is free speech, what is hate speech. When does hate speech go into incitement to violence? And that's something that, by the way, the Supreme Court has heard cases about over the course of the past 200 years. And it was interesting here because the university presence actually drew the line further than the Supreme Court has. The Supreme Court said, you know, there are certain types of hate speech which we know are incitement to violence. And calling for the genocide of a people meets that definition. It appeared, at least initially on Tuesday, that these university presidents were going beyond the Supreme Court on that, being like, no, we have a different standard. Uh, We, you know, it depends on whether you act on it, which people are like, act on genocide. What, What do you mean act on genocide? Like, isn't talking about genocide enough? So, you know, I think we're all having these debates. And, you know, there is this feeling like, how do you get consistency because ultimately, you know, replace the word Jews uh, with a different group, would the answer be the same, given what we've witnessed over the last few years? And we should note, you know, let's play devil's advocate here for these university presidents. They've been facing a lot of criticism about not allowing enough free speech on their campuses, tamping things down, you know, whether, you know, everything from talk about COVID, right, and the origins of COVID, to a variety of things coming out of BLM and Me Too, etc. So the pushback, from some conservatives to these universities has been like, you are uh, quashing free speech. You have to let people say whatever they want to say. And in this case, they're like, well, now that free speech has gone into hate speech. So I think what you see here, and I'm being charitable, these universities are struggling with where to draw the line here. Um, and that's something, you know, I, I put a call out to the Mo News community on Instagram saying if you're involved in higher ed or, you know, legal related to higher ed, Explain to me the rationale behind, you know, what these presidents said. And effectively, a few people chimed in with experience in the matter. And they said, like, listen, there's a lot of hand-wringing going on. There's a lot of debates going on. And, you know, if you draw a line somewhere, you can come up with a thousand different scenarios. What if somebody says this and then does this? What if somebody says this and means this? And it just, it becomes very challenging to police speech and draw that line of like, where is the hate speech become incitement? And what does it mean when somebody says, actually, that makes me feel harassed or that makes me fear, you know, not even being able to leave my dorm room. And this is something that we've been seeing and I don't um, envy the, you know, students right now who are on those campuses who are dealing with it all.
1: Two quick things, you know, it was a long hearing. So the clips that are going viral, are kind of the the worst of it. Right. So that's just some perspective. And and we've talked about that before. These Congress people, this is kind of what they do to try to get sound bites. And they this is their chance to be right. on a national stage. Yeah. But then again, their answers are their answers. So you know you can't necessarily twist their words.
0: Yeah. At the end of the day, these university presidents were beyond ineloquent <laughs> in their responses to that question.
1: And just to follow up on what you were were just saying, some Republicans did point out in terms of free speech that many of these campuses have been very quick to clamp down on free speech when it comes to conservative voices going as far as to firing professors who maybe are critical of a DEI or something like that. And so they're saying there just seems to be a huge double standard here.
0: Right. That suddenly they're being totally open on free speech when it comes to this matter. After making a lot of these campuses, let's be frank not very diverse when it comes to political thought. It ranges from far left to left on many campuses.
1: All right, Moshe, I am very excited about one of our new sponsors, Babbel. Babbel can have you start speaking a new language in just three weeks. I cannot wait to be fluent in French, Moshe. That is the (laughs) language that I am going for. Why Babbel? Because it works. Instead of paying hundreds of dollars for a private tutor or fooling yourself with language apps that are little more than games, Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations. All of Babbel's tips and tools for learning a new language are approachable, accessible, and rooted in real-life situations.
0: Bien sûr, Jill. Meaning? Of course.
1: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I said that for you, it would be a question about how do I find the nearest ice cream store? I guess for me, it would be something about coffee, you know, (laughs) these are the questions that I need answered. Okay. They do have a special limited time deal for our listeners to get you started right now. You could get 55% off your Babbel subscription, head to babbel.com slash news with our discount. That is just six bucks a month approximately to learn a new language Again, that deal, 55% off at babbel.com slash monews, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S. Some rules and restrictions may apply.
0: All right, another longtime partner of ours is AG1 Athletic Greens. If you're a longtime listener, you know that we've both been drinking our AG1 for just over a year now when I started, noticed a real difference in my energy getting more than 70 important vitamins and nutrients just with a scoop in a glass of water every morning. It's a foundational nutritional supplement that supports your body's needs like gut optimization, stress management, immune support. AG goes back more than a decade now and they continue to refine their formula uh, to figure out ways to make it smarter and better based on your baseline health. We've heard from a number of you in the Monu's community who have tried it uh, based on hearing it on this podcast. And so we're great to all be uh, drinking it together, virtual cheers on a daily basis. As I noted, I take mine in the morning, knowing that I'm covered for the day. So if you really want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1, and they have a special deal right now for the Monu's community, a free one-year supply of vitamin D, five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Head over right now to drinkag1.com, that is drink AG the number one dot com slash mo news to check it out and get the special deal today. One more time, drink AG the number one dot com slash mo news.
1: All right, time now for the speed read. Let's start with the latest from the Middle East. This is from the Associated Press. Israeli troops battled Hamas terrorists Wednesday in the center of Gaza Strip's second largest city. Pressing a ground offensive that Israel hopes will help them bring the terror group closer to defeat. The IDF says that they have eliminated about half of all of Hamas battalions as the war enters a third month. Israel's offensive into southern Gaza was bringing to Khan Yunus the same fierce urban fighting and intensified bombardment that obliterated much of Gaza City. Khan Yunus is where top Hamas leadership is believed to be hiding and where they believe some of the more than 130 remaining hostages are being held. At the same time, the war has now sent tens of thousands of Palestinian civilians fleeing that city. Now for the Gaza Territory's southernmost edge and prevented aid groups from delivering food, water and other supplies. The areas where Palestinians can seek safety are rapidly shrinking. Ahead of the assault, Israel urged residents to evacuate from Khan Yunis. But much of the city's population is still in place, along with large numbers who were displaced from northern Gaza and are unable to leave or wary of fleeing again. The refugee camp within Khan Yunis was the childhood home of Hamas's top leader in Gaza, Yehya Sinwar, and the group's military chief, Mohammed Deif, as well as other Hamas leaders giving it major symbolic importance in Israel's offensive, an Israeli military spokesperson saying that they have that area surrounded. But they believe that Sinwar, the mastermind of October 7th, is somewhere underground, adding that, quote, our job is to find Sinwar and kill him.
0: So as we've been telling you, Israel has accused Hamas of using civilians as human shields as the militants operate in residential areas around the Gaza Strip. So the Israelis partially blame that for the high civilian death toll, now believed to be at about 10,000 civilians. Uh, Israel believes that about between 5,000 and 6,000 of those killed in uh, the Gaza Strip are Hamas terrorists. They haven't given details as to how they know that, but that's their estimate. The Israeli military says that 88 of its soldiers have been killed in the ground offensive. That brings the death toll on the Israeli military side to more than 400 since October 7th, So they finally started letting fuel in recently when the temporary truce happened. Washington has been demanding that daily delivery be doubled or tripled from the 60,000 liters of fuel they've been letting in. That decision to uh, approve an increase came late on Wednesday. And by the way, it comes as Israel has been in a verbal fight with the UN, the Israeli ambassador to the UN, calling on the UN Secretary General to resign. That's after Secretary General Antonio Guterres invoked a rare clause and prompted the Security Council to discuss the humanitarian situation in Gaza. Apparently, there's an article called Article 99 that allows the Secretary General to independently bring something up to the Security Council. It hasn't been used since the 80s. And so the Israelis have been very frustrated with the way the UN has dealt with this, feeling that they're being very unfair and preferential to the Palestinians. Um, And so this is the latest, as you, you may see the headline out there, the Israelis are calling for the Secretary General to resign. That's not likely to happen. But keep in mind that that's actually one of the reasons why it's very unlikely the UN is going to be heavily involved in overseeing the rebuilding of Gaza. You know, there were going to be organizations involved, but the Israelis don't trust the UN to control the entire thing.
1: Also want to mention from the Associated Press, at least 10 of the Israeli civilians released by Hamas, both men and women, were sexually assaulted or abused while in captivity. In a report detailing allegations of severe and widespread sexual abuse by Hamas terrorists during that October 7th onslaught, And later against hostages, a doctor who treated some of the 110 hostages released from captivity told the AP that at least 10 men and women among those freed were sexually assaulted or abused. And he didn't provide further details and he spoke on the condition of anonymity just to protect the hostages' identities. On to business news from CNBC. U.S. crude declined 4% on Wednesday, closing at the lowest level since late June, with retail gas prices hitting their lowest point since January, just ahead of the holiday shopping and travel season. It comes despite efforts by OPEC Plus to boost prices by promising to slash supply in the first quarter of next year. Prices at the pump in the U.S., meanwhile, have followed oil prices lower. They hit $3.22 a gallon on average as of Wednesday. That is the lowest price since January 3rd. So we're talking the lowest prices in almost a year,
0: according to AAA. Except for those of you in California, you guys are probably still paying five or six bucks because you have all those extra state taxes and stuff. But in other parts of the country, you guys might be enjoying sub $3 a gallon gas. Oil prices have been on a downward trajectory since September. And that's because OPEC ain't the only game in town anymore. OPEC is the group of oil producing countries. The Saudis are in it. A lot of the Middle Eastern countries are in it. Venezuela's in it. Uh, and then OPEC Plus is the greater group that includes Russia. And they want to keep the price of oil high. So they actually decided recently to cut production. If you cut production, that makes less oil available to the market, thereby bringing up prices. But you have uh, Guyana... You have Brazil, which is still not a part of OPEC, and you have the US, the largest oil producer in the world. So they can make up for the fact that, you know, when OPEC says we're going to cut oil down to get our prices higher, the rest of the world's like, well, we can make up for that now because you ain't the only game in town anymore. So that's something interesting to watch. By the way, one of the other reasons that the prices are going down, not necessarily a good reason, is the Chinese economy. The feeling is the Chinese economy is slowing down. They're going to be buying less oil. They're the largest buyer of oil from OPEC countries. And so, It's a bet that China is slowing down. By the way, China slowing down. Ain't good for the rest of the economy, but it is good for your gas prices. So like many things we tell you when we give you the economic updates, I got good news. I got bad
1: news.
0: (laughs) And so the good news is enjoy uh, the prices of the pump while they're uh, on the lower end.
1: From The Hollywood Reporter and a warning, some graphic language coming up here. Another sexual assault lawsuit has been filed against Sean Diddy Combs this time by a woman who alleges that she was, quote, sex trafficked and gang raped by the music mogul when she was 17 years old back in 2003. The complaint was filed in New York federal court Wednesday, and it marks the fourth suit filed against Combs in the last three weeks, during which he has resigned as chairman of the hip-hop TV network Revolt. In a statement, Combs is denying the allegation, saying, quote, I did not do any of the awful things being alleged for the last couple of weeks. I have sat silently and watched people try to assassinate my character. Sickening allegations have been made against me by individuals looking for a quick payday.
0: Yeah, remember last month we told you about that huge lawsuit from Cassie that he settled out of court, but not the end of his legal issues. It appears, according to this complaint, Combs, who was then 34 years old at the time this allegedly happened, convinced the woman suing as a Jane Doe to take a private jet from Detroit to New York City, where she was then taken to his recording studio. She then says she was plied with drugs and alcohol to the point that she could not possibly have consented to having sex with anyone. And that's when she then alleges the rape happened by Combs and two others. Last month, Combs was sued by several other women under the New York Adult Survivors Act, which revived the window to bring sexual misconduct claims for one year. So that's why you're seeing a lot of these cases from a number of years ago pop up from women who uh, may have not felt comfortable or not ready to sue, but then lost the statute of limitations, and New York made this new window available for them.
1: From CNN, Taylor Swift is ending her year with another accolade. The pop superstar was named Time Magazine's 2023 Person of the Year, beating out Barbie and King Charles III.
0: An interesting group of finalists there, (laughs)
1: Joe. Yeah, the magazine saying, quote, while her popularity has grown across the decades, this is the year that Swift, who is 33, achieved a kind of nuclear fusion, shooting art and commerce together to release an energy of historic force time said swift was selected because she found a way to give people around the world hope in some seriously dark times the magazine also interviewed swift with the artist revealing that this is quote the proudest and happiest that she has ever felt and the most creatively fulfilled and free that she has ever been and yes she even talked about her relationship with kansas city chief star travis kelsey for the first time publicly What did she say, Mosh?
0: Yes, this is what we know. She says they started hanging out after Kelsey wore a friendship bracelet on his podcast, which Swift said was, quote, metal as hell. And then they started to hang out afterwards. She tells the magazine, I'm just there to support Travis. She said about her appearances at the NFL games. I have no awareness of if I'm being shown too much and pissing off a few dads, brads, and chads. (laughs) Clearly, plan that line. Part of her big year, of course, was the Eras Tour, which grossed more than $2 billion. The uh, movie version of it is expected to gross a couple hundred million. And uh, of course, she also broke her own Spotify record this year by becoming the most streamed artist in a single day. Jill, it's always fun to talk about the Time Person of the Year, which is originally Time Man of the Year, and then they changed it. I was going through the list going back to the 1920s. And, you know, there are ones that make sense today, and a couple that you're like, oh, Time Magazine, you totally would have wanted that one back, particularly in 1938, Adolf Hitler, person of the year. Putin was person of the year. They gave it to the Ayatollah as well. Now, Time Magazine defends it, saying that it doesn't necessarily mean they're a great person. It's about having the most impact on the year. So, uh, you know, just for reference, in recent years, last year was Zelensky. The year before, that was Elon Musk. In 2020, it was Joe Biden, Kamala Harris. And we can go back. Back in 2016, it was Donald Trump. Um, So they try to talk about, you know, who's had the most impact on the year. And we talked about the impact of T-Swift. But it's an interesting category, right? Because it's like, literally, it goes from Charles Lindbergh to Adolf Hitler to the Queen of England to the Ayatollah. And this year, Taylor Swift.
1: And finally, from NBC News, Norman Lear, the influential television producer who dominated the American primetime comedy lineup in the 1970s and smashed barriers with topical sitcoms during the 70s culture wars has died at the age of 101 in a prolific career that spanned more than six decades. Lear created or developed some of the most seminal comedies in TV history, including All in the Family, Sanford and Son, Maud, Good Times, and The Jeffersons. Lear's hugely popular shows tackled hot-button issues that network execs and some viewers had long considered taboo. Things like racism, sexism, the women's liberation movement, anti-Semitism, abortion, homophobia... The Vietnam War and class conflict, Lear's most lasting creation might be Archie Bunker, the curmudgeon and anti-hero at the center of all in the family. From 1971 to 1979, Bunker, played by Carol O'Connor, was the cranky but tender family patriarch who endeared himself to millions of viewers despite his regressive, bigoted views, or perhaps because of them, Lear based that character on his own father.
0: Yeah, you know, there was a time in TV not long before that, Jill, where it was all like kind of happy-go-lucky, you know, the mom is the housewife, the dad goes to work. Like leave it to Beaver, basically leave it to beaver and lassie and those types of shows. Right. right. And so he's like, no, like America's changed. Like, did you live through the 1960s? Like TV has to reflect that. So they had to address stuff. You know, they addressed you know, racism, very frankly, on all in the family and on Sanford and son. Um, the Jeffersons is a comedy about a wealthy black couple that moves to a deluxe apartment in the sky, you know, portraying upscale black leads. And they also had an interracial couple as their neighbors. Good times. Uh, was the first show to portray a two-parent black household. And so, you know, that's the reality he was trying to bring to television that reflected what was happening in America. And it's interesting because some people say today that some of the conversations that you watch even to this day that happened on his shows 50 years ago, you couldn't get away with uh, on TV these days because it's hot button, edgy content. Now, it's interesting because Lear was asked in an interview in recent years, you know, what what's up with all these edgy shows you had? And he goes... Edgy is what others wrote about it. I never thought it was edgy. We were simply dealing with the problems that existed in our culture. Notably, Lear uh, grew up in America. He was a World War II uh, veteran. But he says that part of his um, inspiration as a TV producer and writer, came from his own experience as a Jew growing up in America, listening to the anti-Semitic radio shows of Father Charles Coughlin, who was huge in the 1920s and 30s. And so in his TV work, Lear says he built a counterweapon, a bigger and better soapbox to deal with those issues and try to you know, bring people together and, and address them and address the issues of racism and anti-Semitism and all of that through his characters.
1: We could use a little bit of that today, Moshe.
0: If only uh, our primetime sitcoms could solve the problem. <laughs> sure. That's what the podcasts are for. All right, finally, we end here on On This Day in History. On this day in 1917, the U.S. declared war on the Austro-Hungarian Empire during World War One. So we entered World War One on this day. It was about three years into the war. About one year to go, the war would end uh, the following year. Notably, and more famously, 24 years later on this day, Japanese bombers would launch a surprise aerial attack, bringing the U.S. into World War II. Pearl Harbor, of course, located on Oahu and Hawaii. Uh, the Japanese goal, as they were taking over most of the Pacific, was to eliminate the U.S. fleet to prevent them from blocking them from taking over all of Asia. You know, they had a pact with, with the Nazis. Basically, you take that part of the world. We'll take this part of the world. And the Japanese, interestingly, by waking up America, they weren't able to eliminate the whole fleet, bring America into the Pacific War. The following day, as part of the alliance, Hitler declares war on the U.S., bringing the U.S. into the European part of the war. You know, there's a debate as to whether the U.S. would have gotten involved on the European side if Hitler doesn't declare war on the U.S. after Pearl Harbor.
1: Mosh, I know we were talking about Archie Bunker being a little cranky. It sounds like there's a cranky baby behind you.
0: <laughs> it's bedtime for Olivia. You might Aww. hear that uh, faintly in the background um, as we record this on Wednesday evening. Uh, let's finish, though, on On This Day in History, and then we'll go check in on her. On This Day in 1972... American astronaut Eugene Cernan commanded the last crew flight for the Apollo program, effectively ending the Apollo program. Of course, our plan in the next couple of years is to return to the moon with the Artemis program. And then we'll end here with some pop culture. On this day, 49 years ago, we were all kung fu fighting. It reached number one on the Billboard charts. It's a Carl Douglas classic song. And finally, another classic song turning 32 years old today. Black or White by Michael Jackson reached number one on the Billboard charts with that iconic music video, Jill. Uh, Back when we were watching music videos, you know, us (laughs) elder millennials, I remember it coming out like primetime, but they had like a really cool uh, effect where they're transitioning faces between people. Anyway, it was very new in the pre-AI era, the pre-internet era, uh, to have that sort of video editing montage. Of course, another good message for all of us that, you know, the color of your skin doesn't matter.
1: All right, Mosh, we'll let you go because it is the witching hour over there. Um, I hope that bedtime goes well. And for everyone who's waking up with us right now, thank you for listening to the Mo News podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And review us in the App Store.
0: And we have a special podcast right now for the premium listeners. If you've joined Mo News Premium about Purdue Pharma and opioid, a talk to an investigative reporter who looked into McKinsey, the consulting firm, and the role they played in the opioid epidemic. There's an interview with Walt Bogdanich, who has a new book out on the uh, very secretive consulting firm. He tells me they have more secrets than the CIA well, he was able to get inside there. And so I think you'll find the conversation fascinating. It's on our members only premium podcast. You can join Mo News Premium for just $7 a month or $70 a year. That is two free months over at mo.news slash premium. That's where we give you a lot of extra special content, interviews, deep dives on a members only Instagram account and podcast. All right. Bye, everybody. Later. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.